Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez. My guest today is Aaron Austin. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Henry. Looking forward to this conversation. We're going to explore a slightly different area of, from a legal perspective, really uh, what Erin's going to share is how she helps her clients transform from an expertise-based business. So that could be anything from like a consultant or a coach like myself or a designer or a creative services firm or other B2B professionals, how to go from uh, what typically is an unscalable income focus. So you're trading dollars per hour often, uh, that type of business to a scalable and saleable profit-focused business. So that's what we're going to chat about. To receive more information about the How of Business, including links to the show notes page for this episode, and how you can continue supporting my show and receive exclusive content and discounts through a Patreon membership, just visit thehowofbusiness.com. So Aaron Austin is a graduate of Harvard Law School and a strategic lawyer and consultant who uses her 25 plus years of practicing law, including roles as COO and general counsel at large and small IP-driven companies, including Warner Brothers, Lionsgate, MGM, Teaching Strategies, and M3 USA Corp. Uh, she's helped founders also of expertise-based firms build and protect scalable assets so that the business is ready to sell when the founder is ready to exit. Through her hourly to exit podcast, she's also a podcaster, and her consulting practice, Think Beyond IP, Erin guides businesses on the journey of transforming, as I said previously, your unscalable income generator into a sellable wealth building asset. Her special talent is helping businesses meet their growth goals through the creation of IP-based IP intellectual property, IP-based revenue streams. And we're going to explore that with her here today. Erin lives in Lovettsville, Virginia. Once again, Erin Austin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very excited to be here. Yes. Thank you for, for taking the time. And, and uh, let's, let's get into your journey as where I usually like to start. And I'm always curious, especially with people who become attorneys, why, when, when and why did you decide to study law? Uh, that's a good question. You know, <laughs> I, I recall my first uh, memories about the law and lawyers was a book called The Defense Never Rest by hmm. F. Lee Bailey. It was in my mother's library. Really? I have no, I did not read it. I don't know why I became kind of fixated on him until, honestly, until he died. Uh, he was just like this figure out there. He was like the kind of the prototype of a lawyer for me. And I was never that kind of lawyer. Uh, I was a corporate lawyer and been in-house, so I was never a litigator. Um, and, uh, but for whatever reasons, that was, that was my first, uh, kind of, uh, awareness of becoming a lawyer. And, and when I first went to law school, I thought I would do something more public service based, save the world based. Interesting. Uh, but yeah, but I, you know, the way things work at law school is you kind of get distracted by the big, uh, you know, corporate firms and it happened to me and. They got my attention. Yeah, well, especially graduating from Harvard Law, that's that's going to get some attention. And so, so you ended up on the corporate law track. Did you have ideas or 
any kind of vision back then of starting your own firm at some point? No, not at all. Uh, you know, as a new associate, you know, going through the very traditional big law um, path of uh, you know being an associate at a corporate securities um, department, uh, I thought I would just do that. Although I quickly, um, you know, decided I wanted to go in house, and and this was the mid '90s, so and I was in California, so uh, going in house was a very very attractive in those days, I'm sure it is still now. Uh, and uh, and getting, you know, I was never very good at billing hours. I was always mm. a failure at billing. <laughs> and uh, and so, uh, yeah, going in-house quickly became my focus. And then the, I did plan to stay in-house. That, that, and it was all, you know, as you get older and things change is when, when I decided to go out on my own. So. so is there something that happened or what led to this change that said, let me go venture off on my own? Yeah, it 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 almost happened to me. Like I, I've been thinking, I was thinking about it, but you know, you're kind of comfortable in your corporate job, and uh, and then uh, my the business that I worked with then was acquired by Lionsgate, and so um, and so that gave me an opportunity to rethink like what I would do, mm-hmm. um, and and I was also a time of life at the time I did not have uh, any children, and uh, and I'm like, okay, well, I think it's now or never. And so I decided to uh, start a family at that time. And that's when I decided for lifestyle purposes to, to go out on my own. Okay. So flexibility is what you were looking for a little bit more control over your hours, those types of things. Yeah. And I was recalled home. I'm from Virginia. I grew up in Northern Virginia and, you know, I'd been in California uh, from law school uh, until, um, you know, from San Francisco to LA in the film business and was recalled home for family reasons. And uh, so that all, it all came together. It was definitely a time of life. Right. Right. Now that I'm interested in that transition, obviously you were working in very high profile positions, large organizations, lots of resources, lots of prestige, uh, good money. I'm sure. How was that transition at least initially to now putting up your own shingle and and asking for business? (laughs) Yeah, it, it, it is, a, it is a, you know, it is tough. It's a tough transition when you're used to having support. I mean, you know, from when I started uh, in the law, in law, you know, everyone had a secretary, their secretaries, man. And, uh, and you always had that assistance. You never, you know, you always had that support. And, um, and, but my started very simply and frankly, I, you know, and I'm comfortable with that. You know, the technology was there. Um, this is 2004 um, to be able to work remotely, um, you know, granted I did struggle a bit because I live in a rural part of Northern Virginia. So I'm about an hour outside of DC. And at that time there was no broadband out here. (laughs) So I, my first client was, you know, like many, my first clients were old, my old boss at, you know, I think at MGM or, and, um, and, uh, they, I was looking at a film library for them. They were going to acquire film libraries. So they had a bunch of contracts for me to look at. And instead of trying to send them to me, like, you know, digitally, they burned them into a CD <laughs> <laughs> and sent the CD to me. So yeah. otherwise I, you know, it would have taken, uh, who knows? Oh, yeah. I'd still be waiting for it. Probably. <laughs> still be so, waiting for that download. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, the time was right, honestly, that the technology had caught up that you could work remotely. And, uh, and so I've, I've had clients that I didn't meet for years after, you know, starting to work mm-hmm. with them. So, yeah. 
this particular focus in IP was, was that purposeful or is that just the track that you fell into going into the entertainment industry initially? Exactly. It was, I fell into it. I um, was in San Francisco. Uh, wasn't when I was a lot young lawyer and uh, shocked by how dark and rainy it was. And so I went to LA one weekend with a friend and it was sunny and beautiful. And I'm like, Oh, this is it for me. <laughs> and so I went to LA um, and uh, got a job in the film business. It was, you know, when in Rome, it was not my dream to be in the film business or anything. Right. Uh, it was um, just, that was where the opportunities were. And uh, so that started, uh, you know, my career in IP, in the IP driven space. So yeah. film, publishing, data, research, and, that, and the like, yeah. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. So what would you say, I mean, you've been at Analyx since 2004 on your own, that flexibility initially was a key component of it, but what does it do for you now? What does it provide for you now being your own boss, owning your own firm? Yeah, you know, well, I mean, certainly the flexibility is still there. You know, I still can't imagine needing to report into work somewhere. I, I can't imagine, you know, now I don't think anyone commutes anymore, but um, I, I, the idea of, of that, um, but also just to understand the, have control over the upside, like having control over uh, how much you work, how you work, um, the, the types of clients you work with. And, uh, and so now um, that's become, you know, after 15 years, I think I'm wrecked and, uh, and I can't imagine, imagine doing it any other way. Yeah, I completely understand that. So, so well said, I can resonate with all of that. I think that, you know, even though you had a tremendous position, you had a lot of power, there were still other people deciding what your ceiling was, what your limits were, what your value was. Um, how you gave, how you contributed, right? So uh, exactly. that flexibility and that control is priceless, isn't it? Absolutely. Agree. Yeah. All right. We'll start diving into the, this topic that I want to explore with you that I've just kind of given the name of transforming, or I think this is your, your, your definition, helping transform what we refer to as an expertise-based business into something that's much more scalable and potentially sellable. But before we get started, I thought it'd be good to start with a legal disclaimer, if you would. Yeah, well, um, I cannot give you legal advice. Of course, uh, all, all legal advice has to be specific to your circumstances. So if you have any questions, then I encourage you to, to consult your own lawyer about your specific facts and circumstances. Perfect. All right, I thought I'd start with this broad question to kind of set the, the stage here for the conversation. And, and it is, what is at a high level, if you could begin to introduce, what is, as you refer to it, an IP, intellectual property-based growth strategy for, from a small business owner's perspective? Yeah, I mean, at its essence, it is the process of decoupling your income from your time. You know, when we are experts, when we're in the expertise space, um, are we, we sell our intellect, right? And so... Um, and the easiest way to do that and the way most of us start doing that is by selling our time. And so if we want to grow, we either have to work more or we have to find another way to decouple our growth from our time. And so uh, what I do is I help people use their expertise to turn it into intellectual property assets. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I'm going to say first that, you know, our expertise isn't IP asset from the time that we create it, 
but the strategy involves capturing it mm. and making sure we're identifying it, we're protecting it and leveraging it. Um, so, you know, I, I, you know, I constantly telling people, you know, the IP is everywhere. You know, when, when we are using our intellect, IP is flowing in and out of our businesses all day, every day. Basically, you know, I, I would challenge someone to, to tell me something that they do that is not IP based. Um, but we think too much about IP in the very narrow terms of, you know, a book or a course, but it is really everything that we do. Um, and it's flowing in and out of our businesses all the time. So the strategy is making sure we're, we're really harnessing that um, for maximum leverage. Yeah, excellent. And I'd say, you know, I, I, I'm challenged with this. One of, one of the things I do is business coaching. And again, there's there's only so much I can scale that. I only have so many hours in the week to exchange for, for money. And also it limits me talking about the flexibility component of it. If I want to be gone for a month, well, now how am I going to make money if I'm not exchanging that for, for dollars, right? Absolutely. Um, so you, you really hit that ceiling. And to the point that you make that we'll explore further, it's almost completely unsellable because I am the thing that people are paying for. And if I'm not there, then where, where's the value or where's, where is it? Yeah. So that's, that's part of the challenge. And there's so many types of business owners or solopreneurs or whatever you might call it. And you might have team members, but you're still the primary person or you and one other person maybe are delivering the content and getting and so anything that's billable hours, for example, falls into this category, right? Right. I mean, I look at it as a transformation between like an expert-based business to an expertise. So are you selling people and time as experts or are you selling the product of your expertise? Mm -hmm. And so the first or the former is not, is only scalable by adding more experts, right. which is kind of your flat growth, right? Yep. Versus... Um, the latter being selling the expertise-informed assets, which is infinitely scalable. Right. Excellent. So you, you gave some examples of people creating a book or an online course. What are some other examples that we can begin to relate to, to to further understand what we're talking about here? Examples of how you've helped or others that you've observed that have started to create this leverageable expertise yeah, I mean, my favorite way for for experts to leverage expertise is through a licensing or certification program. So as you mentioned, like when you want to scale, uh, when you want to grow your business, either you have to work more or you have to hire. So you'll get to that point where you're doing the one-on-one -on -one services. And if you hit revenue ceiling, you want to punch through it, then you need to either hire people or you need to find other people who can deliver your expertise in exchange in, instead of you. And so when we license our, our expertise by creating some sort of training program, let's, let's use an example of an HR consultant. Mm -hmm. And so they have corporate clients that they go, they do trainings, maybe they do DEI trainings and they go in on a regular basis and do trainings with the, with the people for each new cohort of employees that comes through or or whatever the regular uh, schedule of trainings are. And at some point, in order to continue to uh, provide it more trainings, you'll have to either hire more people or work more. Or you can turn that client into a licensee. Mm -hmm. So a lot of clients prefer that. They'd rather have someone who's in-house, who's trained to deliver 
your training. So you train one of the HR um, employees at your client uh, to, to deliver your training. And in exchange for that training and the materials that you provide to them, they would give you a licensing fee. So you can have as many clients uh, delivering as many trainings as they need without you having to deliver them personally. Yeah, brilliant. And I've seen so many examples of that. You know, I'm sure you're, you can think of, for example, a different provider's that have developed those programs or IPs or certifications for like CPA firms to offer to yes. their clients in turn. Before I get down into breaking it down as to how I get there, and you had mentioned, you know, capturing, pr- protecting, and then leveraging. One of the things I always hear, and, and I've come up with as well, there, there's no way I can bottle or capture all of this expertise that I have. I don't know how I'm going to be able to get anybody else to teach it. Mm-hmm. And so what do you say to that objection? Well, you know, if you are, I mean, first of all, whether or not it's going to be you delivering it or somebody else delivering it, it is a benefit to you to have some processes in place so that every time you are, uh, you know, delivering a service that there is, um, you're not starting from scratch. and Yeah, some some kind of a methodology or process that I follow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it is the basis of that, that is that you can develop something that other people can deliver for you. And, you know, is there, is it possible that, let's say that when you deliver it, it's 100 and maybe nobody else can do 100, but that other people can do 90 and that they will get the same, your clients, the client and client will get the same transformation at the end of the day, whether it's you at delivering at a hundred or someone that you license or an employee delivers it at 90, that most, that, that you should still be able to get the same uh, uh, transformation for your clients. And, and yeah, so. Yeah, such a great example. You know, that that applies to when we think about delegating, right? And I think furthermore than what happens, Aaron, is we'll, we'll be surprised that other people will bring to it their unique perspective and experiences that gets it back up to closer to 100, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Now, you're a good example of this, obviously, because you've done this, but that's a perfect example. If I get certified with your program or, or follow your program to create an IP-based revenue stream, I'm not getting the vast knowledge that Erin has in her head. I'm getting this component of it that you have turned into IP. That is how you've done this for yourself, right? Exactly. And, uh, and it is about, I mean, at this time, <laughs> I do all of, the, all of the training myself, but it, as I continue to work with clients and it becomes closer to standardized, not standardized, but systematized, I think I like the term systematized. Mm-hmm. Um, it is something that when I am ready to grow at, that I'll be able to bring someone yeah. else on who can help me. Exactly. Yeah. All right. You broke it down, I think, into the three components. Uh, primary parts to, to start doing this capturing, I, I think is the, is the first step. And it makes sense to what you just spoke of. Even if I, even if I don't go this route anytime soon by capturing it, by documenting it, by developing those systems and processes, I can, even if I'm just continue delivering it one-on-one, I'll do that more effectively. Right. Absolutely. Um, so how do you recommend people start capturing this stuff that we don't really think of as IP, but that is IP? How do, how do you guide people to start there? 
Yeah, well, I mean, we're going to start with contracts. I mean, intellectual property is a creature of the law, right? It's not something that you put in your pocket or put on a shelf. And so the way that we document it and understand who owns it is through contracts. And so I'll start by saying, you know, going back to the fact that, you know, the IP is flowing in and out of your business all the time. So when you are providing services to your clients, those client deliverables or intellectual property, when you're using subcontractors to help you, you know, either, you know, work on your website or with, with end client deliverables, that's all intellectual property. Everything that your employees are doing that are creating you know, standards and procedures inside your business, even in your employee handbooks, um, your brand, uh, you know, all these things are intellectual property. And so we want to make sure that as we're building our businesses, that we are using contracts to make sure we understand the flow of the rights into and out of our businesses. So when we are using subcon, we're using contractors in order to make sure we are capturing, owning, and able to protect the work that they're doing for us, we have to have a contracts in writing signed with all of those subcontractors. And on the other, on the flip side, when you're doing work for clients and you have some pre-existing materials, you have a framework, you have data, you, you have, uh, you know, uh, some handouts that, well, you know, nine times out of 10, your clients are going to have you sign services agreements. And right. those services agreements are going to say that they own everything I that see. you deliver to them. And you want to make sure that you are carving out and retaining rights in the materials that you're going to be using over and over again, because that's going to be the basis of building those assets that will make your, your business scalable and saleable. Yeah, yeah, that's starting to make sense. And then, and then also, I mean, and it could everything be everything between contracts. It could be uh, copyrights, whether registered or just or just stated, and trademarks to protect to start to, to document and protect this IP that's flowing back and forth, as you said, and being clear on who owns it and and covering myself through contracts and other other ways of protecting my IP, right? Yeah, yeah and I, I'm not going to downplay the importance of registering. Uh, your copyrighted materials or your trademarks, but I, but I don't want us to be solely focused on those things that are registered because there's again it's so fluid. There's so much sure. happening. Like you're not yeah. going to stop and like copyright every time that you create right. something. Right. And you create something every day, yeah. right? And, and so like yes, you know copyright the the you know your workbooks and your training materials and the and the materials on your website. Um, but you're you're not probably going to copyright your SOPs and your framework, like things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to make sure that you're still thinking about using those contracts to protect them, yeah. as well as you know if you have you may have some proprietary materials that are that are best protected through confidentiality agreements as well. So those are also very important to make sure that. Uh, you know, you may be sharing proprietary processes with your clients to make sure that they're using them only internally. Um, and when you have employees and subcontractors coming in and out of your business, you also want to make sure that you are protecting those if they have access to some proprietary processes that they're not using them after they leave you. As yeah, well. excellent, excellent. And I think that, you know, this speaks, to, so we're speaking about the capturing and the protecting you talk about, as you say, do you own what you think you own? Yeah. So is that what you're, that what you mean by that, by that question is these, these points that you've raised here? Yeah, absolutely. Like, so 
unfortunately, and, and this is unfortunate. Some people take pride in the fact that they never use contracts. Like it's a badge of honor. Right. Um, and well, okay. That means that you don't own anything that you think you own, yep, yep. unfortunately. And, um, and so when we're thinking about creating an IP based revenue stream, so let's say you've been selling your expertise, you've been doing one-on-one services with your clients. Maybe you're using some materials that you got from the internet. Maybe you're using some stuff from an old employer, maybe, you know, you know, various places and it's fine. You're doing one-on-one services. Nobody notices. But if you're now going to create a licensing program or a course or you know, sell some sort of data or, or a product and you're putting these materials in them, you better make sure you own them before you create a, a, a revenue stream based on materials that you don't own. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that is why we start always start with making sure uh, that you own what you think you own. This is Henry Lopez with a brief break from this episode to share a special offer from our new show sponsor, Roll by ADP. It's no secret that starting a business causes stress and can sometimes feel like it's you against the world. So you need the right partner by your side. Like Roll by ADP, a chat-based mobile payroll app built with small business owners in mind. Roll simplifies the payroll process, making running payroll as easy as sending a text, really and lets you pay employees, including contractors, freelancers, even yourself, directly from your mobile device. On top of that, Roll helps you stay in compliance, giving you one fewer thing to stress over. Since Roll is an app, you can say goodbye to stacks of paper everywhere, and it always has your back, offering 24-7 live chat support and step-by-step guidance. And Roll is backed by the payroll experts at ADP, giving you industry-leading security, expertise, and reliability. Welcome to a better way of doing business. Visit GetRoll.com slash HowABusiness today and get your first three months free. Beginning to now leverage this, so I, I have... I've started to put that all together and, and using contracts and other forms of protecting it and documenting. And now I've got these assets. How do you advise people that they start to now use that as a revenue stream? I, because I got to think it's a, it's a transition thing uh, that, that takes some time to start transitioning to, right? You don't just turn your one-on-one off typically and start offering the fully leveraged IP licensing. So how do you see people transition? Yeah, yeah, you definitely want to have, I mean, multiple revenue streams are better than one, right? So yep. uh, keeping that one-on-one service going is, and, and you continue to develop your expertise and you know having that, that connection to your clients as well is important. Um, but developing your, what, what, what revenue stream you're going to decide on will depend on the nature of the services and who you're who your end clients are. So again, if you're doing that, if you have uh, a B2B um, business and you have corporate clients, some sort of licensing, like train the trainer, like it's train the trainer um, uh, process is very popular and makes a lot of sense. Um, It may be that you work with other coaches maybe. And so Mm -hmm. maybe a certification program, if you have you know, as a coach, you have a process that you use with your clients and that there are other coaches that are like, hey, I would love to you know, use your process. So having a certification program might make a lot of sense in that circumstance. Um, if you serve um, executives 
um, as a coach. So maybe it makes sense to put together some sort of mastermind or a group coaching program with them. So it will depend on the nature of your client, your clients. Um, but, but, uh, the, the first parts are, you know, deciding, uh, what, what the best revenue stream is. That's part of, you know, what I help my clients identify. And then typically part of that is, uh, you need more contracts. So whether it's a licensing program, obviously your licensing agreements are very important there. Um, when you have a certification program, like how, what the requirements are to get and maintain that certification. Uh, and, uh, and then there's, you know, all the confidentiality pieces that are all part of that as well. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Let's, let's address then why is it, I mean, some of this is obvious, but I'd like, I'd like to get your, your views on it. Why is it that making this shift then makes my business that much more potentially sellable in the future? Oh, yes. Well, first I'm going to just say, you know, use the term sellable and I use, I like the term saleable. Yeah. And the how do you differentiate the two? Yeah. Yeah. So, so sellable just means able to sell. Like you have, you have, I, I use the car analogy. So you have a car, you ha- own the title, you know, your legal age, you know, but uh, you know, so you can sell it. Like it's, it's legal to sell. You can sell it, you own it, you can sell it, but is it saleable? And so let's say that car is up on blocks, you know, it can't pass inspection. It's, you know, mice are living in the engine, you know, it's sellable, but is it saleable? So saleable means there's actually a market for it, that there's someone on the other side of that transaction who's willing to buy it. And that's what makes it saleable. And so for the businesses, especially on the service-based, you know, where you don't have physical assets that you're selling, you don't have real estate that you're selling. That what we need, what the buyer needs to know is that buying your business is makes more sense than just creating their own. So what do you have that would be very difficult or impossible for them to recreate? So one, we need to have exclusivity in our business. So intellectual property assets, they are legal monopolies. Like literally it's the, it's, uh, you know, Nobody else can use what you created and you have a legal monopoly to use them for the duration of the protection under intellectual property laws. So that's the ultimate exclusivity. Also your market positioning. So if you are known as, you know, the coach to, you know, superstars, then that positioning is also part of your exclusivity. The second pillar is your predictability. So especially when you're an expert, they want to make sure that all the brilliance just isn't in your head Mm -hmm. and that if they buy the business, that the brilliance will will go to them. And so they need to know that when they look at your financials and look at your projections, that it makes sense when they look at, okay, they actually have a system for delivering services. They actually have a system for for client, um, for lead generation. They actually have a system for you know, onboarding, and they actually have a system for training employees, and that they're that the employee that the as you as the owner are no longer the essential element. That this is a business that can come without you. And so, when you develop intellectual property and you have those assets, then you have both exclusivity as well as uh, predictability in terms of you know the revenue streams that will come from that from that yeah. asset. 
And that's what then puts me in a position to have a business that's saleable. I, I have to, you know, that predictability and I have to be able to show significant revenues. That's what has, that's what somebody's going to buy from these IP assets, not from the stuff that's people who I've had a relationship with for 20 years or people who depend on talking to me that right. can't be replicated. Somebody can't replicate that. Right. Yeah. They're buying the future of your business, right? Not the right. Past. Exactly. And so they want to make sure that those, the, the business will continue to thrive predictably um, in their hands. Yeah. You uh, in particular work uh, not necessarily exclusively, but often with female business owners. So I want to ask you, what have you seen? What are you seeing? Are there particular challenges that that females have as it relates to this process of transitioning to an IP-based business or just in general? Yeah, I mean, I am my avatar, honestly. So I started my business as an IP, as a uh, lifestyle business. And, um, and then it suddenly, you know, it's 15 years later, I'm like, oh, you know, am I building assets? Am I building a business that could run without me? Am I building a business that I could sell someday? Because again, and, your, your only path would have been, okay, bring on some more attorneys, junior attorneys, paralegals, start scaling, scaling in the traditional way that one might scale a legal firm. Exactly, exactly, which did not interest me at all. And, uh, and so there's a couple of things that happen with women that one, there's that mindset shift from doer to leader mm. and, uh, and not, not unique to women, but, um, but when we have started our businesses as lifestyle businesses, especially um, even if we didn't start as being the primary breadwinner and we weren't thinking about it that way. And that then we discover that we have this significant business and we want to make sure that we are uh, maximizing the value in it. Like getting from the doer, I love my clients, they need me, um, this is my baby, uh, to the, okay, I can still care about my clients, do great work, uh, raise my child, and but still do it from a place of separating myself from the day-to-day, -day, from the implementation pieces and building a team. And so some, for some building a team is a major block as well. Um, and they, maybe they've had bad experiences with it um, or they, it's too much pressure to know that it's not just my family who's relying on this business. It's now somebody else's uh, family as well. Um, and so mindset uh, shifts from doer to leader, I think is, is one of the main things. And, and I always push back against the, it's my baby, you know, like, well, if you're a parent, well, you, we have babies and we raise them to be independent. That right. makes us good parents. Right. <laughs> right. And so, yes, let's raise our, our, let's raise the kid to be independent from us. One day. Yeah. But, but it, it, I, what I'm hearing in part is that what you have found as a female business owner and consulting with them that often it's harder, we're generalizing for, for women to make that transition in part because again, generalizing often that, that nurturing caregiver mentality kicks in and can hold you back. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, excellent. Thanks, thanks for sharing those thoughts there. Okay, wh where, where do I get started? What's, what's your advice for someone who's just getting started? This we've touched on already, but I'd like to summarize there. If I'm doing none of this now, I, it's the first time I've even thought about, hey, I've got some IP here that I need to start 
capturing and protecting, where do you suggest people start? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, contracts. You, you, you need to absolutely positively need to use contracts. And I don't want people to be afraid of contracts. They can be super simple. A services right. agreement can be one page. And there's just some kind of magic language, I call it, regarding ownership of your intellectual property rights. But I like to think of contracts as beneficial to everyone. Like To me, it is a relationship document. It sets expectations. Everyone knows you know, what, who, what, where, when, how much, and what is better than that. That, that preserves relationships and makes them more predictable. And, uh, and so uh, I encourage everyone to, to lose their fear of contracts if you're not using them. Um, they don't have to be complicated. And sometimes they are though, depending on the nature of your clients. I mean, my immediate clients as well as the other side of the table um, for my clients can be you know, very large companies. And sometimes you will get dissertations for, for agreements, but it is important to focus on them because it really will determine the value in your business in the long term. Yeah, and it seems to me like Erin that also that beginning that that structure, putting in that rigor, helps me also begin to focus on where is this IP now that I'm protecting? I've just begun to protect it through a contract. What is it? How do I start developing? And I think it helps me. It's like when we first create our legal entity, right? It's kind of that stake in the ground. But I think yeah. this is that next level of rigor and formality in your business that's essential for the points that you're highlighting, which is. It is a better business just all around for everybody, right? It creates clarity, transparency, all those things. It, it avoids disagreements or misunderstandings, but also begins to protect what's yours. And I think especially now where you see so much of people hiring contractors or freelancers or virtual people, and so many, I talked to so many small business owners that have nothing in place there in those relationships for people who are creating IP that I really don't know if I own. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we're thinking about it as that those people are creating IP for them, but they absolutely are. They absolutely are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then the other thing is, you know, I am a huge, this is not legal, this is not legal advice, but I love people having specializations or niches because to become the, the narrower and deeper you go, the more expert you are and the better known you are for something. And part of that exclusivity piece is being known for something, being known as the expert in X space. And that will obviously make your, your uh, business more attractive and more valuable in the event of an exit. So that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's such a brilliant piece of advice there. And I, I speak to that just in general for people, especially starting out, you know, we have this tendency to want to be everything to everybody. But, but in fact, when we niche down, that's usually where we find our, our, our space and our ability to create a name and a brand. And it applies, I guess, here, as I think about it, and you mentioned it to this very topic of where do I get started? Well, what is across everything that I offer? What is it that is my, kind of my area of specialty that I can begin to package this IP around? Yeah. Right. Because that's where, you know, the asset's going to come from. It's not going right. to come from being, you know, a brilliant management consultant. Yeah. It'll be because you, you know, know the specific, you know, area of, 
of management consulting. Yeah, so. like I've developed a specific process and technique for construction management consulting. And so, exactly. you know, just and so I've got a process, I've got experience, I have depth, I've proven it. And, and so that's how I've developed this particular niche within that broader category. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And and to, to the buyer, I mean, when we think about um, who may be a good buyer for our businesses, you know, when you have that niche and you're known for whatever the area, your area of expertise, it makes it easy for people to see where you may fit into their existing business. That's area. right. That's right. So, so let's say, you know, you're looking, you have a client that you do, they outsource all of their work in your particular area of expertise to you. And when you're ready to, you know, perhaps exit, that they might be an attractive buyer as someone who wants to bring that in house. And so it is, you know, people think that buying, you know, selling businesses is just for big software companies. Cause that's what we read about, right? We read right. about the massive um, uh, acquisitions or people going public and uh, but, but sales, sales of businesses are happening every day of every size. And, uh, and so having that, uh, you know, being known for something helps you attract the buyers. Um, so that's, those are mine. Yeah, no, it, it ties back to the point you made earlier, that clarity for the buyer mm -hmm. of understanding the value of what they're getting here. So it's clear yeah. this will be, you know, this adds to my, an area that I don't have a focus in, or I don't have a practice in, or I don't have any depth in, or whatever the case might be. Uh, and so it makes it clear what the value is. And if you've focused, again, going back to the point of niching into that focus, you if you already have a beachhead there, then that's valuable to someone because now they're looking at what well, would take us five years to get to the point that you're at now. Absolutely. Yeah, that goes to the, is it, how difficult or expensive is it to recreate what you already created? That's right. And yeah. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Oh, uh, we've only been touching on it briefly, but, but give us the summary on the services that you offer through Think Beyond IP and also through your podcast. Yeah, well, through Think Beyond IP, I work with uh, the founders of service-based businesses and I help them you know, increase their income and their impact by creating IP-based revenue streams. And so we take their, their expertise and turn it into high leverage uh, assets. And so we do that through one, first, making sure we understand what you own and to the extent that there are any flaws in your, uh, I like to call it your legal foundation. So uh, if you are currently, you know, using your expertise uh, in what I'll call, you know, a one story building with a one-on-one -on -one services, when we look at creating that second story of uh, a new IP-based revenue stream, that's adding a second story. And so we want to make sure that foundation is strong enough to add that second second story to. So first we fix uh, shore up the foundation, and then we build the second story. And uh, and we use that. We do that through, uh, you know, capturing your your expertise and uh, creating the new revenue stream from them. Uh, some of the things that we talked about today, like licensing and certification. But I also have people who have developed data and insights that they can sell. Um, and so there's a number of, of ways to, to uh, create IP-based uh, revenue streams. And, and the then, podcast is called Hourly to Exit, right? And the, yeah, Hourly to Exit. Well, there we talk about the, the transformation from that 
unsustainable hourly business model to creating a business that can be sold someday. From and so we kind of you know I I talk it's mostly um, guests. I do have the occasional uh, solo episode talking about legal issues, but mostly I have guests who work on everything along that continuum from, you know, talking about mindset, talking about SOPs, talking about trademarks. Uh, I had someone recently come talk about NFTs, which was just interesting to me. Mm. <laughs> and uh, so, so we, we talk about the whole journey as well as uh, exit planners and financial advisors. So everything along the way. I think what's also very powerful here as it would apply to any business thinking about your exit early, not when you're looking to exit is critical. Yeah. Yeah. It is definitely a journey. It is not something that you can say, okay, I want to sell my business now and, you know, like a, you know, put on a slash of paint, like you can with your house. You got to right. you know, make sure it's, it's prepared. So. Yeah. Well said. All right. I'm always looking for a book recommendation. Is there a book that you would recommend to us? Yeah, I mean, I love Built to Sell by John Warlow. And it's the classic and it it goes step by step through the things we need to be thinking about in terms of you know developing specializations and niches and uh, making sure we are capturing our expertise and creating kind of nice tight revenue streams. You know, he also has you know the automatic customer, which also is great um, of creating that recurring revenue as well. So yeah, great book. That's one of my yeah. favorites, favorite, yeah. favorite books. It's, it's a must read, I think, for all small Absolutely. business owners. Absolutely. Excellent, Aaron. Uh, tell us, uh, what's one thing you want us to take away from this conversation that we had about transforming my expertise or service-based business into a more leverageable, saleable IP-based business? Yeah, I want you to think, even though you are in the service-based business, you have assets in your business. And we just need to look and find them, but they are there. And those assets will be the basis of creating scale and in your business, as well as creating something that can be sold someday. Yeah. And, and the asset isn't just my brain power or my partner's brain power, right? That that's, I can't sell that very easily. Cannot sell that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Unless, except for trading it like I have been, yes, right? Yes. Yeah. Or unless program. you want to get a job, you know, exactly, you, want to go exactly. with, you want to go with the, with the business, but most of us, yeah. It's not that's good. right. That's right. And it requires us to be present. And that's the other, that's the other limiting factor. In mm-hmm. addition to the fact that I only have so many hours to sell, uh, that means I have to be there to sell them or I'm not making any money. Right. Right. Uh, tell us where you want us to go online to learn more. Yeah, please go to thinkbeyondip.com. And there uh, you can uh, sign up for my newsletter and get access. I have a whole library of, of um, information there. I, I'm known as the graphics queen. I love to put mm-hmm. complex uh, concepts into graphics form for people to understand. So I have a whole library of them there. And uh, yeah, and, and I have a weekly newsletter. We talk about all sorts of good things on that early to exit journey. Fantastic. Great stuff, Aaron. Thank you for this enlightening conversation and taking the time to be with me today. Thank you so much. This is Henry Lopez, and thanks for joining me on this episode of The How of Business. My guest today, again, was Aaron Austin. I release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find the show anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or at my website, thehowofbusiness.com. Thanks for listening. 
Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.